Hello, my name is David. I'm the editor of Think Magazine. And I'm Nika, a writer for Think Magazine. So this is going to be our last episode for 2020. And we decided to have things be a little more freestyle than they usually are. We're going to go over our, some of our favorite episodes of this year's podcast and, you know, just have a little chat about them. So, Nika, is there an episode that, you, that really sticks out in your mind? First of all, I don't appreciate that I'm the one that has to start this, David. Okay, then I'll, I'll start. I'll do my best. Okay. Oh, you, you've got an idea? Um, I, I, I suppose. So, <laughs> okay, I want why, to start. Why don't you start? Well, I think I have a soft spot for all of the episodes. Of course you do. But um, I think I really enjoyed the first episode that we had with Alexei Tingli. Now, I don't know if it's because it's the first episode that we did or if it's because the nature of the topic. I mean, we had quite a few podcasts where we spoke about the internet and social media, but for some reason, with Alexei, um, one of the things I remember the most is how, by the number of likes that you have, they can determine whether your political affiliation or they can determine what sort of music that you like. And I found that fascinating. I have to say, I've been thinking along a similar line, but not not in terms of my favorite episode, but sort of some of the facts and realities that we had discussed. Because this was brought up in our last podcast as well with Vilislava. The detail to which these algorithms can then predict your behavior and come up with um, very personal characteristics like your political affiliation. And estimate, you know, your lifespan. <laughs> well, have you ever thought that maybe it's because people aren't so complicated? It's not that algorithms are really smart. It's that people aren't that complicated. And it's really easy for the algorithms to figure people out. Good point. And I think, yes, I think that you're right to an extent. It's very problematic for people to live in uncertainty and live in duality and live in the gray areas. So we like to say that people are very complex and there's a lot that we don't understand, which is true. However, it is a fact that most of our DNA is exactly the same. So the things that make you different from me, that's personality-wise and in terms of physical appearance, that's like 0.1% of your entire genetic code. Just 0.1%? Yes. The thing is... 0.1%. Well, maybe the things that make us different aren't necessarily things that are hardwired into our genetics. I mean, I wouldn't say... I'm just putting it out there, you know? I don't have a background in genetics. I have no idea. But um, maybe the things that make us really different, like the way we behave, they're not solely determined by our genetics, but maybe by our upbringing or... Well, of course, it's not just genetics, it's also your environment and the way that you're brought up and where you're brought up is also going to have an effect. But I think that, going back to your earlier question, are we maybe just kind of simple? In, in a sense, the way that we respond to stimulus, um, the different ways that we are capable of, of thinking, even the spectrums that you have, the spectrum of sexuality, or um, the, the spectrum in regards to um, your ability to think critically. It's a spectrum, which means 
it can be on one side up to a point or it can be on the other end up to a point so there are two end points and you can't go beyond those end points if that makes sense so you're saying it's predictable to a sense how far uh, someone it's, it's predictable if you define the spectrum, as if you define the parameters. Ah, that's prefer, the word. And I think that in many cases we do have an idea of what those parameters are. Um, and yeah, why, like, why has Facebook and other social media platforms, how have they been so successful? The ways in which that they're addictive, they're, they're addictive for the vast majority of the human species because our brains work in the same way. That dopamine response is going to be that same rush for the vast majority of the, the global human population. Well, I mean, I imagine we could stretch that to all mammals, I suppose. The, I mean, there was the experiment that was done with pigeons where they push a button and they're rewarded with food. And, you know, as long as they're pushing the button, they're rewarded. And, you know, they keep getting this, this dopamine hit. But, the thing is, if why isn't everyone addicted to it then? Uh, let's stick with social media. If it's so well designed, or rather coercively designed to, to hook us, then why isn't everyone addicted to it? Well, aren't the vast majority of people addicted to it? Well, I mean, we could say that the vast majority is addicted, but if we're so similar, then logically speaking, all of us should be addicted to it? Well, that kind of goes against the laws of nature because thankfully we have something called mutations and mutations are fantastic because this, was, this is what gives us genetic variation. This is what gives us diversity. So you have all the time these little changes happening every time a cell divides. Right? So there will always be um, people that quote-unquote don't fit the mold or go against some kind of identified trend because we are different. Uh, there's always going to be um, exceptions to the rule. I mean, I mean, sure, we could chalk it up to... But first of all, don't mutations take a really long time to happen? No. Oh, all right. I, I had no idea. <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I prefer the idea that, I mean, okay, it's not about preferring one idea over another, but I think it makes more sense that not everyone is addicted to Facebook because of the way people have been brought up, for instance, in the sense you might have people who are brought up in a very uh, disciplinary environment and maybe they're less prone to be addicted to things or, you know, for a different number of, of reasons. Oh, yeah, maybe you're right. So I've said mine, prefer, well, one of the episodes close to my heart. What about you? I think for me, I, I'm kind of, my head is more around sort of this, this theme that I, I've seen crop up in several of the episodes, because I can't say that there's one that sticks out to me as a favorite. What I what really come, comes into my mind is our relationship to data and information. So even when we weren't talking about big data, 
And so that, that did come up in several of the podcasts. But even, for example, when we talk about health and food consumption, there is a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of information overload and then there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of misunderstanding around the data that's being disseminated. So it, it just makes me wonder, you know, we, we've got this excellent research, you know, and how do we get it out there in the right ways? I mean, obviously this podcast is part of that effort. I mean, for me, I mean, I would agree we have all this amazing research that's you know, that's being conducted not just locally but across the world. However, I feel that we're vying for, first of all, we're vying for people's attention on social media. But what what we're competing with is what worries me in particular. Uh, this this idea of mis- like misinformation. The amount of misinformation that's being spread online is huge. And I think one of the main reasons for it is this idea where if there's something that we disagree with, oh no, that's fake news. Let's just layer it as fake news and you know disregard, discredit it completely. And I think more and more, um, I blame Trump for this. You know, I, I have I blame Trump completely. I know we're going political, but you know it's fine. Uh, I'm sorry. Are you are you being serious or joking? No, I'm being serious. You blame one person. I'm not blaming one person, but I. That's think... what you just said. Well, okay. I mean, you see, fake news. What you, I did not say that this is fake news that okay. you're saying. You're using it against me. Um, <laughs> no, no. But I mean, don't you see it even with politicians or, or you know, with public figures, where as soon as instead of engaging with something that they that opposes their worldview, it's just immediately labeled as something. You know, it's discredited. It's like it's fake news. It's not something that we're going to acknowledge. So you're saying that um, you have an issue with the fact that we are not engaging with other perspectives? I have issue with the fact that anything that is somehow opposed to our worldview, we, instead of sitting with it and saying, okay, listen, why do people believe this? What arguments does it bring forward? What sort of information does it bring? Instead of sitting and engaging with it, we disregard it completely, not acknowledge it whatsoever. Yeah. It's very hard, I think, to sit with the other side, you know, the, the, other, the other perspectives, which could be directly in opposition to, the, to what you believe in and what you stand for, um, to, to give it space and to really then try to engage with it beyond just, you know, quote-unquote sitting with it. It's, it's a really, it's a difficult thing to do. I think it takes skill. And we don't, and patience, but we don't, also, we don't really talk about that either. So we say, okay, but have you considered this perspective? But how do you consider that perspective? And these are conversations I've been having recently with some friends as well. In this disaster of a year, where we're having online conferences and um, a plethora of Zoom meetings. Online podcasts. Online podcasts, which um, are draining after a while. You know. But not the podcast. The podcast but not, yeah, the, the podcast. They're amazing. Listen. You can binge watch them. You mean binge listen? Binge listen, yes. <laughs> um, oh gosh, now I lost my train of thought. Um, You've been having these conversations with friends? Yeah. How, how do you listen? So, 
how do you interact? How do you consider all the other perspectives? How do you think in different ways? Because it's not just about thinking critically, which we all should be learning how to do, and hopefully schools start teaching that. But it's also how do you think creatively? How do you, and I've been preaching this as well for years, preaching to a point which I, because I'm not actually actively trying to implement um, any sort of changes into the education system for this to happen. But I do believe that we need to be exploring how we do these things. And we take for granted the, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So we're having a conversation right now. I am speaking. You are, I'm assuming, listening. But assumptions are dangerous to make. Because there's also a difference between passive listening and active listening. So how do you listen actively? And what is the difference? And why is that important? And furthermore, why aren't we having um, seminars and training sessions on how to do these things and how to reflect? And I mean, I find this, I'm going to be honest, I find it a little bit absurd that we need seminars and training sessions to, to be able somehow to reflect. And you mentioned really? maybe teaching. Uh -huh, because this is something that I believe should come, should be developed naturally, naturally in the sense that, as I mean, you mentioned that schools should be teaching this. I mean, okay, sure, maybe there would be a class, but shouldn't this be developed like organically when you're meeting with friends as, as a five-year-old or as a six-year-old and you're discussing with, with, with some of your friends? Um, I mean, or even just playing. Well, sure, maybe at six you won't be discussing, but you're playing at least. And I mean, in order to, to be a good sport, how let's put this way in the game, you have to be willing to sit down and listen to the opposing side. And I, I think that one of the reasons why we find it so difficult to engage with other ideas is because we're so attached to our current set of ideas, to our current set of beliefs, where if our current way of framing the world is questioned, then we view it as a personal attack. So, we're too attached to the ideas that we have. Whereas if we learn, if we're a little bit more distant from our ideas and we realize that when someone is attacking the argument, they're only attacking the argument, they're not attacking us personally. Let's all become Buddhists and abandon the concept of self. I mean, <laughs> I mean, sure, yes, let's, let's just all become Buddhists. I mean, no, I mean, it's not just Buddhism that preaches this idea, Stoicism preaches a similar idea, where you don't necessarily I mean, or and it's not just in philosophies, I mean, even modern psychology tells us you don't necessarily, you are more than just your ideas. I mean, you're also, just because I, let's do it with music. I, I used to have a friend, well, he's still a friend of mine, and he was a bit of a, a music a music buff. And in the beginning when he was talking about my tastes in music, and by the way, I have a very embarrassing taste of music, it's like all pop and that sort of I, stuff. I could see you totally um, rocking out to Britney Spears. I mean, maybe, I mean, Britney Spears maybe, and more likely coming like a bit, no? But anyway, don't judge me. I don't know who that is. It's okay. And anyway, like when people are criticizing your, your tastes, for instance, in music... Um, and that's personal. Not necessarily, because they're, I mean, I'm not just my tastes in music, just because... Yeah, but what did you just say to me now? Don't judge me. Oh, no. Which means, 
that it, there is, it's part of you. So if I judge you, you're hurt because I am then attacking part you. Yes, but just because we disagree on taste of music doesn't mean we're no longer friends. Just well, I beg to differ. What, really? So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I feel if someone attacks our beliefs, I mean, let, let's take a local example. Every time you see two people discussing, be it on online forums, such as Facebook, or in person, you know, pre-COVID times, and people are discussing about local politics, then it always devolves into a shouting match. <laughs> I mean, and I can't help but suspect that the reason it devolves into a shouting match is because we're so attached to our, not just our political beliefs, but in this case, our political beliefs, that we can't, like trying to entertain an opposing perspective would mean harming ourselves. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting um, in the fact that you and I are speaking together is that you're Maltese, I'm American. The political divide is very, very similar. You've got bipartisan nation where you have two groups on opposing ends, essentially. Also, the same colors, which I find very fascinating. And now it's becoming more polarized in the States. Um, I don't feel completely comfortable discussing it because I haven't uh, stepped foot in that country for a number of years now. But there are many people who are so devout in their affiliation with the political party that they, they will blindly support anyone who's from that party. They don't um, do any research, they don't do any questioning, they don't do any reflection. It's you stand by that party through thick and thin, rain or shine, and that's it. And then there is, I think, a lot of familial bonding around um, the dedication to that party as well. So you get this in Malta. And I remember when I was doing research in Cotonera, and um, I was uh, speaking with um, uh, this youth worker that I was collaborating with, and he said that people here, if someone in the family decided to vote nationalist or just not support labor, it is like an act of betrayal. And this is fascinating. It's fascinating because how can something like politics become so personal? And it does because I think for some people, it is an identity. And as humans, what do we need? We need to have an identity. We need to have a purpose. We need to have meaning. But we need to diversify our identity. I Absolutely. Think we need to be willing to accept that if one facet of our... I think we've discussed this, um, this point that I'm about to bring up with Dr. Pauline Grek in that podcast. Um, our identity shouldn't just be limited to one thing. I mean, let me give you an example. Let's say I'm I'm really attached to my job, so on, and you know I'm and I view myself solely as the editor of thing. What happens when, God forbid, you know my my career stops? Then suddenly I am I left without an identity. I mean, but whereas if we were to diversify our identity and we don't view ourselves as just our occupation or just our political belief or just our religious belief, then if one of these facets falls, then we still have an identity to cling on to. Does that make sense? Yes, of course it does. And lucky you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> lucky you. You're, I, I think that 
having that diversity of things to identify with is also um, coming from people with a very privileged background, I think, possibly. It's a theory. I could be wrong. But, for example, with me, I don't even know what my identity is. Uh, on a personal level, I don't really care so much. Although I'm, I'm sure that I do ascribe to different things, and maybe I just consciously don't, don't entertain the thoughts a lot. Um, but I have had the, the opportunity to travel, to make a life for myself in another country, and that inevitably opens you to other experiences and other um, perspectives. I don't. I, I think it's impossible to to be able to, to to kind of just stay in your own head with one mode of being. Um, if you move around and you have all these different experiences, you um, you've also traveled. I'm assuming. Um, I know you spent a lot of time in Prague. Czech, not Prague specifically. Czech. Czech. Sorry, sorry. Small sorry. village called Mšets for everyone, okay. for anyone who knows where it is. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> it's all right. Um, but also you are educated and I think that having that uh, growing up in, in Europe in a developed country and having the ease of being able to move around and the options because you do have options and then you have people on the other end who perhaps are, don't, don't get that kind of education, never leave their town or their region and all they know is where they grew up. And but, all they know is perhaps the, the industry, the occupation that, that their parents have, that they are expected to take up. And that's it. I'm sure you're not saying that, oh, you have to be privileged to be able to have a complex sense of self. That's not what you're saying, right? No, I'm... You can still be from one of these small villages or whatever where, you know, and still have a very complex sense of self. Right. Yes, okay. but I but I think that the fact that you have multiple identities is highly highly correlated with your privilege. Just to correct, I wouldn't say multiple identities. I would say multiple facets of a single identity. Okay. Uh, anyway, I do I do have a follow up question I wanted to ask about American politics. Yeah. Why is it that the the, the logos of your parties, or for want of a better word, the party emblems? Why is it an elephant and a donkey? No clue. Sorry. No fucking clue. <laughs> I don't think we can say fuck on the Erika. Well, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you're giving me, you're gonna give me so much work to edit this, Erika. Nastia. Well. Um, okay, I wanted to backtrack as well. There was something you were saying about, like, why can't we just take on other perspectives? Because, you know, if you're criticizing something, you're criticizing perhaps an opinion which is not something personal. Or you're... And then you had uh, dismissed what I was saying about how I think we need to have training and seminars on, on things that are quote-unquote basic, like how to listen. Now, I was not offended by this. Also, a note to our audience, I don't get offended um, because I think it's a waste of time. We can talk about that in another podcast. Alternatively, if you want, you can try and send her your most offensive comments and we'll see if she gets offended. <laughs> Please it's, do. It's like, you, you ever saw that, that on, on Reddit? It's like you post a picture of yourself and it's like, roast me. 
No. But you so, do that? Yes, you just post a picture of yourself Why? and say roast me and you see. Why? So you can see what the geniuses of the internet and trolls have to say about you. And they just troll you completely. But why would anyone do that? Because there are some people who say, oh, I'm not offended. Well, I don't, I don't feel the need to make a point in such a way. Okay, um, go on. Make your, make your point in a different way. Well, I think that if I... Okay, I'll try to explain this briefly then. If you get offended, what you're doing, I think, is effectively closing the door to other perspectives. Because if I'm offended by you, I am, you know, just writhing in my offended state and not having, uh, not exercising compassion and thinking, well, where is this coming from, from the other person? Why are they saying that? Trying to understand um, their place and their behavior. So I'm closing the door to that. And I think that it stifles progress. I mean, I, I, was, I was reading a while ago that one of the way our brain handles a, and being wrong or being insulted is strikingly similar to when we're physically attacked. It's, for some reason, our brain hasn't evolved to the point where we can, it doesn't differentiate between a physical attack and the mental attack, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And how else would we explain, like, how else, let's, let's look at football clubs. Let's look at football clubs. Why is there such fierce rivalry between opposing clubs? It's not like, first of all, there is a huge amount of dedication between the, the fans of the club and the club itself. And yet when someone else attacks their club, then suddenly it's, it becomes very, it feels almost as though it becomes personal. I mean, in some cases, it might be better to offend someone's you know, parents than offending their football club. And I can't help but think it's because we're personally invested, let's not say attached, but personally invested with the club. It goes back to identity, I think. If you're attacking the team that you're a fan of, it's like you're being attacked yourself. And Okay, so we've been talking about a lot of things, and I started to backtrack, and then we got into another discussion, so I'm going to backtrack and backtrack. <laughs> in, and connecting it to this thing about identity, because I think that's what we're talking about here. So being able to, as you said, separate your identity with um, your opinions, your perspectives, which I think is a very healthy thing to do. So when you had sort of dismissed what I said, like, we don't need that. We don't need to have training sessions on how to do these things, um, like listening and having dialogue, because we know how to do that. In fact, you and I are doing this now. But I'm saying that I don't think we do, actually, and I think it, we take it for granted. But your sort of dismissal and saying, no, um, we've got that figured out, and that's not the way we need to move forward. It's not... Um, as you said, it's not insulting me or attacking me or who I am. It's a difference in opinion. Now, the reason why I'm not taking this personally, or maybe the multiple reasons, one is I'm confident, not all the time, but I am. So uh, that's a huge player, I think, is whether you're confident or insecure. Two, because I am 
as, as we've been talking, would be able to separate what I think um, society needs versus um, how I see myself as an individual. So I don't have a lot of personal investment in um, what I think society needs to in this in this way. As in, if I'm like, for example, um, running a project, mm-hmm. a project that was born out of an idea that I had, um, there's then there's going to be a lot of personal attachment because it grew um, out of me, so to speak. But just saying, oh, you know, I think that we need to learn how to listen. Um, is is you know, it's it's a it's an opinion. But then, hold on a second before I before I forget this. I also don't think I should be so personally attached to the project, even if it's a project that I'm managing, even if it's a project that was born from an idea that I had. And then this is now tying back to um, the Buddhist idea that there is no self, because really this. The, a lot of these personal attachments, I think, are, are coming from ego. And what good is the ego, really? Well, I let me put it this way. I would say ego does... I'm in between two minds, whether the self is something beneficial or detrimental. On the one hand, I can see the value of, you know, instead of viewing yourself as an isolated individual, viewing yourself as being part of something much bigger. I can see the value of removing the self to embrace that point of view. But at the same time, I think we do need to be invested, I mean, to a certain sense, not just with our ego, but in society as well. Because otherwise, how are you going to, first of all, realize when things aren't being done ethically or, you know, things aren't being done or could be improved, rather, unless you're invested in it as well. And I think having a sense of self, I believe, gives you the, the drive to, to make things better, you know, to, to, to improve not just yourself, but the world around you. And I like what you said when you mentioned uh, whether it, comes, it boils down to being confident or insecure. Rather than confident, I would say affirm in your beliefs. Would that be all right if we rephrase it in that way? I don't know if that's true, because I'm okay with being wrong. That's confidence. I wouldn't say that that's confidence. It's like being, like, I think this is very important. I think you hit you hit a very interesting note here. We have to be okay with being wrong, and I don't think it comes down to confidence because you can have a lot of confident people who simply will not accept ever being wrong. I think we need to come up with a new term rather than confidence. What is it then? Uh, I mean, I don't know. We could call it blah, blah, We don't, we can make up a word. <laughs> uh, but I think this, I like this idea where you have to be okay being wrong. I mean, when you stop thinking about it, what's so wrong with being wrong? How bad can it be when you're wrong about something? I will, uh, there's, there's one particular experience that I went through in my life. I was doing my undergrad in biology and I was working as a biology tutor so essentially I was giving lessons to students who were studying introductory biology 
and they had an examination coming up. So of course the students pile in right before an exam um, so that they can uh, you know, memorize all the facts they need to memorize in this very ineffective system of learning. And I, <laughs> uh, I had mixed up the X and Y chromosomes. So I was telling the students that X was male and Y was female. And one of the students was like, isn't it the other way around? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and then when I was having a meeting with the lecturer for that specific uh, module, he was like, Nika, it's the other way. And I think my face went white because I had it drilled into my brain that as the tutor, so as someone who was like, you know, supposed to be imparting knowledge upon the students. Um, so I had to have the answers. And not only did I have to have the answers, but I had to be correct. Uh, so it was a very humbling experience because I can't recall how I mixed it up. Um, but I learned that um, even when you're a teacher or a tutor, I wasn't even a teacher, um, you can't have all the answers and you shouldn't have all the answers. And you are also learning. So it is not this one-way relationship where... I am the authority figure and I give you the answers and you ask the questions and that's it. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, when, I when I was doing teacher training, um, it's one of the first things they, they told us. Um, they, had, they mentioned, like, you never, one day you're going to go into a classroom and someone is going to stop you. Someone is going to ask you a question and you're going to blank. Now, the last thing you should do is try and fake it. They never said you should admit that you don't know. But what they did say was like, well, actually, yeah, you can admit that you're wrong and say, listen, I don't know, but I will check and get back to you or we can find out together. Because I think being a teacher, it's not just about giving people information. It's about showing people how to access this information in the sense that, like you, like you rightly said, it's not the teacher who has all of the answers. I mean, if we go into class and we expect this one person to have all to be infallible and have all the answers, then how are we going to learn to be okay with being wrong? If we see our teacher saying, like, listen, you know what? This is a really good question. I don't know how to answer that, but I'm going to find out and get back to you. And, you know, you actually do come back with the answer then. Or you have a lesson about the next day or a few weeks later. I think that can really help show people that it's okay to be to not know everything, to, to be, that it's okay to be wrong, to, that it's okay to live with uncertainty, like we were saying with Paul Ann's episode. You don't Absolutely. need to know everything. It's, it's okay to be well, wrong. Well, it's impossible. And why not get excited about everything that we don't know? I mean, in one sense, it can be overwhelming. In another, I think, isn't, doesn't it make it um, just absolutely thrilling to be alive? It makes life, um, I would say, magical in the sense that... In the, that sounds... <laughs> that sounds... Oh my God, that sounds so naive. Um, um, no, no, he I mean, says with his arms crossed. <laughs> I mean, it makes it... Imagine you know everything. There used to be this philosophical thought experiment. You do. Imagine you know everything. Imagine you're, you're omniscient. Um, uh -huh. You're omniscient. You're all-knowing. How boring would life be if you knew all of the answers? Maybe one day we'll develop algorithms that can predict exactly everything that we're feeling. 
but until then I think we can enjoy the uncertainty that's around us. Any final thoughts or closing remarks, Nika? Uh, well, it's it's been great. Um, I always enjoy speaking with you, David, both on and off the record. Oh, likewise. Uh, I think it's been a really interesting season and certainly a lot of food for thought that we can bring into season three. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned the following year for a few um, one-off episodes or mini-series. Season 3 will be, hopefully, fingers crossed, coming back in 2022. We're going to take a, a year away from the project and kind of, you know, reimagine it a bit. Uh, so, yes, lots of exciting stuff coming there. But Tink will still be here and, you know, we'll be able to... Get read the magazine, read. become enthralled. Yes, get your knowledge fix. First edition coming out at the end of February, beginning of March.